Welcome back to Unknown Friends, my weekly book review podcast. And a special welcome today to this, the last episode of season one. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions. I am just a reader and a writer, and the reason I love stories is because the good ones show us who we are and who we could be. So thanks for listening today. You've tuned into episode 30 this week, the season finale, in which I will be discussing a novella by C.S. Lewis, uh, because he's my favorite author and because it seemed fitting to close the season with a Lewis novel just like I opened the season with one back in April when I reviewed his last published work of fiction, Till We Have Faces. Today, I am taking a novel from more or less the middle of his career, The Great Divorce, published in 1945 at the end of World War II. So in case you need, like I do, a reminder of C.S. Lewis's dates, he was born in 1898 and he died in 1963. He died actually on the same day as President John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, uh, just one week before what would have been Lewis's 65th birthday. Now, I'm not going to go into his biography. It is well documented and um, pretty well known, but I do have to share one totally random thing that made me laugh out loud as I was reading a bit about the Inklings, um, the literary group that he was a member of in the 1930s and 40s, uh, along with Tolkien and others. So I just learned the other day that besides reading excerpts from their own works in progress, the Inklings also did some pretty goofy things. And one of those was that they would sometimes hold competitions to see which one of them could go the longest without laughing while reading aloud from the work of the author uh, Amanda McKittrick Ross, uh, maybe Amanda McKittrick Ross. I'm not, I'm not sure how her name is pronounced, but this lady, Ross, was a late 19th, early 20th century novelist and poet. And may she rest in peace. She was a terrible writer. Uh, I had never heard of her until I read this tidbit about the Inklings. But then I looked up her first novel, which is available online. And yeah, it is so bad. It's really funny. Um, see, the problem with her writing is that the style is just florid. It is so verbose. Uh, and circuitous, and she she tries to use all these figures of speech and ornaments uh, like metaphors and um, alliteration. Oh, she loves alliteration, and it just ends up being meaningless and so over the top. Bless her heart. From what I've read, she really believed she was the writer of the ages. But poor thing, it's just hilariously awful. Anyway, I got such a good laugh out of reading a few excerpts of her work that I thought I'd share with you just a sentence or two, uh, and then on your own time, if you're ever feeling in need of a chuckle, you'll have a new resource that you can pull out to cheer up your day. The prose of Amanda McEttrick Ross, something like that. So here's just a short quotation I took from somewhere in the middle of her novel, Irene, or uh, probably Irene, 
Idsley. I think that's how you pronounce the title. She writes, The duped husband, when being fished for with the rod of seeming simplicity and concealed character, and quickly caught on the hook of ingenuity, with deception for a bait, was altogether unable to fathom its shallowest meaning. Was he not, therefore, to be sympathized with? The little jealous spark again revived and prompted him to renew its luster, which had been hidden for a length of time beneath the cloud of dread so silently awaiting the liberty of covering the hill of happiness. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just have no idea what any of that means. What is the hill of happiness? And I love how seriously she takes the image of, like, fishing for a husband. It's so intense. Anyway, I hope that made you laugh as much as it did me. Thank you for bearing with my uh, rabbit trail of the day. Anyway, I'll get to the point. The Great Divorce. This is a serious work. Like I mentioned, it was published in 1945. Uh, Now, I find it interesting to put um, a book by Lewis in the context of his other works, or at least to to look at the timeline to see generally where it fits in. So he finished his space trilogy right around the same time as The Great Divorce. The That Hideous Strength was published in 1945 as well. Uh, during World War II, Lewis was also, as usual, writing lots of essays and sermons, uh, and it was during the war that he gave his series of radio talks that later were published as his uh, famous book, Mere Christianity. He had also recently published The Screwtape Letters in 1942 and The Abolition of Man in 1943. Uh, Now, The Great Divorce was followed in 1947 by his work of nonfiction titled Miracles, um, although he revised that in 1960. Um, But he he wrote a lot in the 1940s. Now, this is pre-Narnia, interestingly. Um, I think... Because Narnia is how a lot of us are introduced to Lewis, it's easy, at least for me, to sort of vaguely think of the Chronicles as some of his earlier books. But they are actually some of his last, certainly among his last works of fiction, other than Till We Have Faces. Uh, the, The Narnia books were published in the 1950s. So, for what that's worth, there is a frame of reference for the publication of The Great Divorce. It really was in a, a very fruitful time of Lewis's literary career, uh, and you can identify plenty of thematic connections between its contents and some of his other works, fiction and nonfiction from the same period. Uh, now, one more kind of random thing, but specifically about this book. Ten years ago, there were actually rumors in the news of The Great Divorce being turned into a film with the author N.D. Wilson as the screenwriter. Now, that was a while ago and nothing has come of it, so uh, please don't tell anyone that you heard from Rochelle Ferguson that The Great Divorce is being made into a movie. I don't think it is. But my interest was piqued just at the idea of trying to make a film out of this story. And on top of that, N.D. Wilson writing the screenplay for it. That's, That's an intriguing combination to me. I need to review something by N.D. Wilson on the podcast. He's a cool guy. Um, But anyway, that's all in theory. It does not seem to be actually happening. It was just an interesting concept. 
The book has, I might note, been staged several different times in the last decade or two, which is also a little puzzling. Um, I'm not sure how they managed to portray some of the details of the story, but uh, anyway, that's that is beside the point. I'm going to try to get on track and stay on track. So what is The Great Divorce about? Well, let's consider the title first, uh, which is not referring to a human marriage or divorce, but to a divorce, figuratively, between heaven and hell. So it's in some ways a response to a much older work by the poet William Blake, who published The Marriage of Heaven and Hell in the late 1700s. Now, let me read the opening of Lewis's preface to The Great Divorce, which explains the context of his work. He writes, Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. If I have written of their divorce, this is not because I think myself a fit antagonist for so great a genius, nor even because I feel at all sure that I know what he meant. But in some sense or other, the attempt to make that marriage is perennial. The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either-or. That, granted skill and patience and, above all, time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found. That mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of everything we should like to retain. This belief I take to be a disastrous error. And he continues in the next paragraph, If we insist on keeping hell, or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. So, essentially, Lewis wants to make the case for the either-or. What actually sets life in heaven and life in hell, or even on earth, apart? What makes us choose one or the other? And why is it impossible to choose both? Now, these might sound like very abstract questions, but believe me, he gets very specific uh, and hits close to home throughout the story. He, he has that remarkable ability to touch on universal truths through particulars, uh, which is one of the traits of a great writer. So the story of The Great Divorce, uh, because while its preface might sound like the introduction to um, an essay or work of nonfiction, it is actually a novel uh, and a fantasy. And what it portrays is a fictional journey through hell and heaven, mostly heaven, in which the narrator, the main character, witnesses fellow souls learning about and choosing between the two. Now, don't scream heresy and stop listening quite yet. Uh, I give that basic description of the plot very hesitantly because you have to understand C.S. Lewis is not actually trying to imagine what hell and heaven will be like, uh, nor is he claiming that he believes souls can choose between the two after death. This is uh, this is another instance in which his preface is very helpful and important to remember. If you read this book, you must read 
his preface. It's, it's short, but it's crucial. So he closes the preface with this warning. I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course, or I intended it to have, a moral, but the trans-mortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. They are not even a guess or a speculation at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish is to arouse factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. So you have to understand that this is somewhat like the Screwtape Letters. In both books, uh, C.S. Lewis has hit on an imaginative setting that opens up unique opportunities to teach us truths about our actual present lives and the battles we face every day. Uh, the choices that are before us here and now as we live on earth, either in submission to God or in rebellion against him. In The Great Divorce, Lewis is not actually trying to speculate on what heaven will be like um, any more than he really thinks devils write letters to each other about how to most successfully tempt humans. Um, these are not genuine attempts to portray what the afterlife or supernatural beings are truly like. They are just fantastical setups that allow us to see truths about ourselves more clearly. So, so that's fundamental as you read The Great Divorce. You cannot take it literally. So read the preface and remember the points Lewis emphasizes there as you read the novel itself, and they will help guide you through the work. So more specifically, what plays out in this story? What's its direction? What characters are involved? The narrator is never named, but he begins the story by describing finding himself in a dingy street in a silent town on a gray, drizzly evening, and he wanders until he finds a bus stop. Now, I'll just make clear from the start, in the imaginary setup of this story, the gray town is a representation of hell. So the narrator and some fellow passengers soon board the bus, which takes them astonishingly up into the air on a voyage out of the town completely, and eventually they find themselves coming up over the top of a cliff and out into a glorious green light-filled country where the bus lands and they all exit. And this country is, in the novel, um, heaven, or at least a kind of entryway to heaven. Now, once everyone disembarks, the, the narrator sees that he and all the others are uh, quite simply ghosts. They are transparent and wobbly, and uh, in contrast, everything in this new place where they've arrived is almost unbearably solid. Uh, they themselves are too weightless to even bend the grass where they step, so the blades of grass hurt their feet. Uh, they don't have the strength to pick up even a leaf or pluck a flower. It's all too substantial for for thin, weak ghosts like them to have any effect on. Now, this is understandably a little unsettling, but soon they are met by certain beings, spirits, who come to welcome the ghosts and tell them about this country they find themselves in. Now, as the narrator observes his fellow bus passengers, he learns that each of them is being met by someone they once knew in life on Earth. The, the spirits who welcome the ghosts are actually 
Uh, souls who have died already and are on their way to heaven, but they've been sent to meet the bus and greet their old friends and invite them to stay in this country. Now, most of the ghosts choose not to stay for various interesting reasons, but it's suggested that one or two do choose to stay and join their friends entering heaven. Now, if you're wanting to scream heresy again, remember, Lewis is not making any claims about the afterlife. He is not trying to claim that it's possible to choose between heaven and hell after death. He is simply making the point that you must choose between heaven and hell. And you should choose now while you're alive. Um, The narrator of the novel has some of the same thoughts that you and I do when experiencing this story, uh, wondering if if death is not really the final uh, cutoff point, so to speak, um, and wondering all kinds of things about time and eternity and uh, free will and possible reversals of fate. But when it comes down to it, he is told repeatedly that what he is experiencing is just a dream and that he is asking questions through the lens of time, whereas eternity Uh, and reality is beyond time. The narrator cannot answer the questions he's asking, and likewise Lewis tries his best to make it clear that he, the author, is not trying to answer impossible questions. What he does want to communicate is the choice we all have, and he, he wants to show some of the ridiculous, insubstantial things that we too often cling to instead of choosing life and joy. So our narrator overhears a series of conversations between uh, the various ghosts and the spirits from heaven that have come to welcome them. And in almost every case, although the ghost is being invited into eternal life and ultimate freedom and love, he or she rejects it. So in one instance... Uh, a ghost might be holding on to something as silly as a grudge that gets in the way of his acceptance of the invitation to heaven. Or maybe he's so concerned with his own uh, superior reputation that the idea of being in a place where every person is equally valued and respected is just unbearable to him. Whatever the things are, that hold the ghosts back from stepping into heaven, in every case, Lewis strips the choice down to its essence to help us see what is really at stake in our own lives when we are tempted to choose uh, vanity or lust or power instead of the goodness of a life surrendered to God. He shows all those temptations as the nothings that they truly are. The so-called pleasures of a life apart from God are utterly empty. There's nothing real or satisfying about them. And in contrast, Lewis wants us to see the the solidity, the fulfillment you find when you choose heaven. And I mean in this life, every day we are choosing heaven or hell. Thy will be done, says the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. The choice is not easy, but it is simple. Uh, the Great Divorce gives us this this wonderful little passage that, in a way, sums up, I think, what this book is is fundamentally about. Let me read it to you. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, 
and those to whom God says, in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. So Lewis is tackling difficult questions here. Uh, He's aiming at the center of our self-will. Even though he's not speculating about the exact experience of the afterlife, he is, in a sense, defining the essence of heaven and of hell. Heaven is all that is good and real, and hell is all that is self-centered and hollow. And in The Great Divorce, Lewis wants to illuminate some of the many manifestations of the choice between heaven and hell that we all make in our day-to-day lives. It's not just a choice between good and bad, uh, between what I should do and what I shouldn't. It's a choice between what is real and what is a sham, uh, between happiness and misery. And that's an essential perspective changer. At least it has been in my life. One of my personal favorite quotes from the book comes from a short encounter between a ghost and a heaven-bound spirit who is trying to help the ghost. This particular ghost is held back by shame and selfishness. Uh, She's just, she's unable to see past herself and her own vulnerability. And after conversing for a while with the spirit and getting basically nowhere, the ghost finally just says, I wish I'd never been born. What are we born for? And the spirit replies, for infinite happiness. You can step out into it at any moment. I love that. It's it's beautiful and true. Well, while The Great Divorce is a bit tricky to talk about as far as plot and characters because it's not structured like a conventional novel, I hope I've given you enough at least to get a glimpse of the project Lewis is undertaking in this story. Uh, And it is an easy one to misread, so I hope also I have successfully forewarned against reading the, the imaginative setting literally. Lewis's themes are really impossible to communicate with complete accuracy. He's just one of those writers who conveys what he means in pretty much the perfect words, so no summary or restatement of what he says can exactly transfer his meaning. Uh, So the long and short of it is you just need to read the book yourself if you haven't. I cannot do it justice, um, but maybe I have whet your appetite a little. Uh, Or if I haven't succeeded in doing that yet, then my last ditch effort is simply I highly, highly recommend this book. Please just take my word for it and read it. It's not long, and it's well worth reading and rereading. I, I have lost track at this point of how many times I've read it, and I get more out of it every time. Funnily enough, if you happen to be familiar with my drama Narrow Escape, uh, which I wrote back in 2015, The Great Divorce was a major influence as I was writing that script. And I was aware of it at the time. I was consciously trying to mirror some of the truths Lewis had taught me and uh, reflect them in my stage play. So, fun fact of the day, although that's probably irrelevant if you don't know anything about my play Narrow Escape. Sorry about that. Anyway, that concludes my review of The Great Divorce. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today. And thanks for listening to Unknown Friends at All. This podcast has been so much fun for me, and I've learned a ton this season. So thanks for sticking it out through the learning curve and supporting me all the way. It just means so much that you take the time each week to listen to what I have to say. I count that as a huge honor. So thank you. Now, although this is the last official episode of season one, and I won't be launching season two until early next year, I do have some bonus episodes planned for the next several weeks while I'm taking a break from book reviews over the holidays. And first off, I'll actually be back next week, next Wednesday, with a short episode taking a quick look back over the first season. And in the episode, I'll be sharing my top recommendations from among all the books I've reviewed so far. Uh, There have been several books I've really loved this season, so it's hard to choose favorites. But I have done my best to narrow the list until I can give you a very short rundown of the books I liked best from season one. Now, I'd love to hear from you what your favorite books from season one were, so feel free to message me on Facebook or Instagram and let me know which books were your favorites. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe to my podcast so that you get notified when more bonus episodes come out over the coming weeks. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Again, I am Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and if you want to learn more about me and my writing, just head to my website, kittywhamproductions.com, linked in the episode description. Thank you so much for listening!